So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, You're a God that uh, is one who uh, wants us to fellowship with you and to follow you. And we pray this evening as we look at these parables, as you challenge the hearts of individuals with their need uh, to be wholeheartedly following him, uh, may we also consider what uh, you told uh, people 2,000 years ago and really see if our heart matches uh, what your heart is uh, for us. And so help us to understand these parables, and this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, we have been going through the parables that uh, were parts of a feast, but were given to people who were enemies of Jesus. And he was sitting at a table full of religious leaders, Pharisees, who uh, really did not uh, want to um, accept his invitation to the kingdom. They had excuses and other things going on. Uh, in fact, they were pretty much downright, uh, well, opposed to him and everything that he did. And all of a sudden in Luke 14, it changes. The Lord's no longer at a feast. He is now moving. Um, It seems like he may be headed towards Jerusalem. And with him, he's got great crowds of people. Read this in verse number 25. It just simply says this, that uh, he, uh, or there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. And it's the start off for this, this parable set. These people would figure that they were disciples of Jesus. They're following him around. These are some of the very same people that when Jesus gets in a boat, they're running from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side, going across the northern part there and being able to see his boat. And they would be these type of people that would be there to see his miracles and be there to hear his teaching. And they were going and following him around, and they would have really considered themselves to be true followers of Jesus because they were uh, keeping up to, to date on everything he's doing, following him around. And in your notes, I have this, uh, the crowd, the great multitudes are following Jesus to Jerusalem. They'd enjoyed seeing his miracles and hearing his teaching. In fact, probably they had expectations that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom upon arrival to Jerusalem. I mean, these are people that had been there possibly for the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And think about this, if he's going to Jerusalem, he's got messianic claims, he's been claiming, I'm a king, I'm, a, you know, I'm the Christ, uh, and I am uh, this type of individual uh, who can meet your needs, and then he feeds you at no cost to you, no loss to him. I mean, that's kind of the government official you want, because, I mean, think about it now, most people are wanting that from their government, that they be taken care of, you know, food, housing, everything, that would be great to be taken care of. What they don't remember is the fact that you get taxed, to pay for those things. But, you know, just think about this. You have an individual who's able to feed you with no cost to you. And able to do it, and it just in some ways, in their mind, uh, just at a, a prayer and a breaking of bread, he's able to feed thousands. Uh, so they're thinking, in some cases, that he's going to set up a kingdom, and so they want to be, a, you know, follow him around, that they don't want to miss out on this. They would have been, these people would have considered themselves disciples of Jesus. I mean, some of them would have been calling themselves this, disciples of Jesus. 
And that, uh, in that culture, meant a lot. It meant that you were a follower and that you were going to mimic, and that's what a disciple was, you followed somebody around to then imitate their life, their words, their actions, their activities. So you think about this, John had his disciples, and his disciples would eventually be the type of people that would go out and be preaching a message of repentance. In fact, we know that there's a guy... 20 years later that's still acting and teaching like the the Apostle John, a man by the name of Apollos, going around and he's teaching these things. I mean, he's, he's keeping to what John taught, and he has to actually be told, listen, there are some things that you need to be updated on. But he's following in the teaching of uh, the Apostle John, or excuse me, John the Baptist, and following after him and doing the things that he would have done. So these people that are with Jesus, these great multitudes, I mean, this is not just, you know, a group of like 10 or 15 people. You know, I always laugh when they, you know, they had a major press conference, you know, and then you actually see, you know, it wasn't a great crowd of people. There were like three people there and they were clapping, but, you know, the, and you actually see the picture of what it's like and it wasn't a great multitude. This is, this is John, or excuse me, Luke's record. And, you know, these are the terms that you would use for thousands upon thousands of people. They're following Jesus. So when Jesus turns to them, he gives them what he is going to declare is the nature of true discipleship, what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. And we're just going to read through verse 26 right to the end of the chapter here uh, and get the full effect of what Jesus did. It says this, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, uh, sisters, yeah, sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, happily, or the idea of just uh, this is the circumstances, after he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador or an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. That first statement of Jesus' qualifications for discipleship to us in our ears seems quite cruel. To start off by just simply saying uh, this, that you're to hate your relatives. You know, think about this, it's coming up to Father's Day. You know, I don't like you. Father, you're like that? No, that, that's not what should be going on. We, you know, our culture doesn't uh, think that way, hopefully. But 
the Jews would have understood what Jesus was doing here. Because they would understand what he meant by love and hate. See, we, we think of love and hate as uh, a, an emotion. To us, that's the, the major emphasis. You know, I, I just fell in love. Oh, okay, that's nice. That's the emphasis. But really, when it comes down to the true definition of what hate is and love is, uh, you have an idea of choice. I mean, these people would have understood the difference between love and hate. Hate, in the basic sense, means to, and I'm going to put it this way, to love less. You go, okay, that's kind of using the same definition, but I'm going to get to this. It means to love less. And in their mind, they would have understood this. Love had the idea of an intentional choice. Okay, this is an intentional choice. It's, it's a, not an emotion that we're talking about here. It's a matter of will. I'll give you an illustration of this. Okay, you have in your notes there the example that would have been the key one is the one that the Apostle Paul actually uses is Malachi 1, 2, and 3. And I'm not going to have you turn there because I can quote what you need to know out of this. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, does this mean that God loved Jacob and he just absolutely despised and loathed Esau? The answer is no, because you actually read through the book of Genesis and he gives Esau a very great line, in fact, a line of 12 kings, own country that follows after him. He takes care of him. But you say he chose Jacob. Yes, because Esau should have been the first one because he was first in line, birth order. He should have had all the blessing and all of this. But God goes, no, I've chosen Jacob to be the one who receives the promise, not Esau. You go, that's a choice. It is a choice. And when you get to uh, the passage in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, God, excuse me, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, illustrates this, that God makes choices to display grace to certain individuals. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to show certain people kindness, but he does. He chooses to do this. He chose to show kindness to Jacob, the deceiver, the supplanter, the liar, the cheat. God chose him. And you say, was it because Jacob was lovable? No, he was a man you would get irritated with and hate to be around because you would feel like he was going to cheat you. But in this case, what you have is that love is describing a choice. That's what it's describing. What Jesus, in the third paragraph there, what Jesus was declaring to these wannabe disciples was that they were going to have to decide that it was more important to follow him than any other relationship they might have. You have the him. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Well, I'd rather have it than any relationship that would be considered one that would be close in this world. I'd rather have Jesus. I mean, if we had this scale, you know, would you take Jesus or mother? Jesus or father? Jesus or brother? Jesus or sister? Jesus and best friend? Who, who would you go with and follow after with your whole heart? 
The answer is, if you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to do this. And, and the statement is very clear here. You cannot be my disciple. When I was reading and preparing for this, I had a section or a story that came up, and some of you are familiar with a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer came from a non-religious home, and uh, when he was uh, getting into his teen years and uh, into college years, uh, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. But in the process of that, he also realized that the Lord was calling him into the ministry. And he realized this, that, okay, yes, I got saved. Parents not really all that excited, but they're non-religious. But if I tell them I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be a you know, pastor, a minister, they aren't going to be able to accept that. And what you have happen is this, is that when he goes to his dad, he said, I prayed about this. He goes, I knew it was going to be this case. He goes to his dad and tells him this, and his dad, he actually was, uh, had knocked on the door and was talking to his dad, and his dad said this, I will have no son of mine be a minister and slam the door in his face. But Francis Schaeffer had already come to the conclusion that, listen, it's more important for me to follow what Christ is calling me to than my father. Now, <clears throat> you read the rest of the story, and he does go out and set up different ministries, and in the end, his father does come to a saving knowledge of Christ. But that is uh, one of the things to consider. Is Jesus more important than any relationship you might have? The second statement that Jesus said, gives there in verse 27, of a person who does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And this second statement to the crowd emphasized a choice once again. And this time it's not going to be easy. Okay? It's not, I, I, I've heard some people go, well, what's your cross? Okay, you know, you're told you bear a cross. What's your cross? You know, oh, I've got, you know, I, I've got this hangnail in my toe and I've got to live with this and this is my cross to bear. You know. Or it's just something that go, doesn't go right and I just, I bear my cross and I, you know, this is, that, that's not what's being talked about here. Okay, the Lord's not saying, okay, find your cross, you know, find what your cross is and you just carry that and be good and stoic about this. no. What he's saying is there's a choice here and he's going to use himself as an illustration. Jesus, when he was in the garden, you find this. He's saying, okay, take this cup from me. And what he's meaning is the cup of the cross. He's within 24 hours of being put through the ringer on the cross, both of the eternal punishment of God and the physical suffering that he's going to go through on the six hours on the cross and everything before that. He's saying, if, it, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. And what Jesus is saying here is that you make a choice to do the will of the Father even though it may even lead to an early death. I mean, we're all going to die, but we're talking here that it's going to, the choice there is going to bring you to death. I mean, the blank that you have there in that last paragraph on that page, Jesus made the choice to do the will of his Father by going to the cross. 
Any disciple of Jesus was going to have to submit their will to him if they were going to be his disciple. Now, he gives the illustration, and we'll talk a little bit about more about those details there in a second and what that truly means to follow, the, follow Christ and take up the cross and do this. But the Lord gives two illustrations. He gives the illustration of a tower, and so he, he goes to the farm field, which would have been common for most of these people who were there. They would have had uh, their own crops. They would have lived not off the supermarket and what they got through that. They would have lived off of what they got off their own land, so uh, they would try and take care of it. And one of the things you would do if you had enough money is that you would put up a tower in the middle of your property really served twofold purpose. It was a storage shed. You would store stuff there and, and uh, have stuff that you would need to work in the field. But the other thing was you made it tall enough so that you could be able to see what was going on in the field. And you would uh, look for either people who were robbing, stealing parts of your crop, animals that were doing destruction to the property, or just be able to overlook and see what's going on with the crops. You'll get a, a bird's eye view, if you want to say, say that, a, a good view of what's going on with the crop, and you would put up a tower. So if you were someone who had some wealth, you would put a tower in the middle of your piece of property. But what the Lord says here is that this is not just some casual commitment, okay? You have this in the notes. This could not be a casual decision. This would take time and resources. It required thought and a commitment. Okay, it's not just, eh, I, I think I'm going to build a tower today. Really? You, know, you got to get the rocks for this. You got to get the whole process of having others help you out to be able to lift the stones to that, that height that it's going to need to be there. You're going to have to get all the stuff to supply it. So this is not just a casual commitment. You're going, okay, we're going to start this project and we're going to see it through. You know, if we're going to start it and get all the stonework, we better then pile it up to make the tower that we need to have. I mean, a tower that would not be finished would become the laughing stock uh, or the joke of the community. And you've seen enough projects uh, in this world that are large-scale projects and you just kind of shake your head and go, you know, what a waste of time, what a waste of money, uh, what I could have done with the money that they spent on this, uh, and they didn't finish it. Uh, and so the Lord's just giving an illustration. You wouldn't build a tower like that. You'd have commitment. You would have this decision, and you would carry it out. The second one was a king at war, and this is a parable that moves from the farm to the palace. And the king was being approached by an enemy. And what he has is that, you think about this, war is not a casual affair, something to be taken lightly, okay? You just, you, you know, hopefully we, we don't think that way, that, you know, wasting of lives and the killing of individuals is something to take lightly. But in this case, he realizes that this man is coming with an army of 20,000. He's got an army of 10,000. And he's got to go through and sit down and go, okay, let me look at my laps, uh, maps and let me look at my uh, individuals I have here, think through the fortifications I have, the weapons I have. Can I possibly take this man on and win? 
And if he thinks he can, after he's done all the the forethought there and this, okay, you're going to go to war. So if you think you can go to war uh, and go to war and win, you do it. However, you might be on the other side. The king had to decide if he could make war and win or make peace and, I'm going to put it in quote, win. Okay, because, you know, when you're signing a peace treaty and it's not as great to you, and in some senses you're going to pay taxes or tribute and that, it's not great, but still you don't end up dying and a lot of your people don't die. That's a win. But th- this man has got the responsibility to decide, should we go to war or is this a time to, to sue for peace? One choice or the other, and whatever you do, go full-heartedly into it. Don't just, you know, well, okay, let's fight this now. Well, maybe we could just, you know, eventually have it. No. You commit to what the course of action is going to be and hold to it. To carelessly plan would bring defeat. One way or the other, if you didn't plan for what you're going to do, you would be defeated. Now, you say, what's the conclusion here? The conclusion is just simply this. The combination of the two parables make clear that a person has to carefully consider what it will cost to be a disciple of Jesus. These people are carefree as they go along and they're just happy to be with the Lord and everything that he's doing and are excited about the fact of uh, just being around. and, And yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but they haven't considered something about being a follower of Jesus Christ. They haven't considered the fact that the leadership of Israel has already turned on Jesus. They already decided that he's doing things by the power of Beelzebub. They have already determined they aren't going to accept him as their Messiah. And here's what's going to happen. They're eventually going to get Jesus And who are they going to go after after they get Jesus? Anybody else that claims to be a follower of Jesus because now they got rid of him and there's still people that are supporting him. Really? Uh, and uh, they're already determined that they are going to go after, G, or go after his defa- followers. And Jesus is with his disciples in John 14 through 17. And the night before he dies, uh, he's going to tell his disciples, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. Understand that that's going to be the case. Don't think it's going to be different for the, the servant when they did certain things to the master. I mean, for us, it, it is... Uh, Let's finish the paragraph here. Being a disciple was a decision that considered the cost of following Christ in this life. Um, I will say this, and we just need to sit and think about this one. Did you understand all of these details that, you know, when you heard the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel and all of that, uh, for most of you, it was like, okay, I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ died for me. Uh, he's promised to have fellowship with me forever in heaven. I, I can't do it myself. I need Jesus Christ. And so you accept Christ as Savior. But it probably never really occurred to us some of the difficulties that would happen afterwards. In other cultures, it's like that. 
you become a follower of Jesus Christ and it's as if you've written your death sentence off. The family uh, will no longer have you as part of their family. You're as good as dead to them. Uh, you will find yourself being persecuted for the smallest of things. Uh, I was just reading a report recently uh, that uh, you had uh, a family, uh, including a one-year-old, that's sent to prison in North Korea because the family had a Bible that they found. Yeah, that, that's reasonable to the North Korean authorities. So when you have countries like that, Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is a really serious matter. You know, it's not just something you go, well, okay, I accept Jesus Christ my Savior, and, and it's, you know, it's, this is all good. There's an understanding that in this life it's going to cost. Now, here, here's the, you know, you can have 60, 70 years of difficulty and an eternity with God. You know, I, I'm okay with that. But in many cultures, this is the thought process. But I'm telling you this, this is a set of parables for us as Americans because we don't face persecution on this level yet, but it's getting there. For you to be a follower of Jesus Christ means you are a counter everything the culture is a part of. I think most of us uh, in the last five years have been shocked how far uh, things have been legislated and just deemed as being okay. In this past week, I, I could not believe this, that they passed legislature or in the legislature of California that if you don't affirm the identity uh, of your child, you will have your child taken away if you don't affirm their identity. I mean, you're thinking there's only two genders, male and female. But you've now got a whole state that declares you must, whatever your child's age is, if they say they're this, you go with it. You can't tell them otherwise. Don't try and correct them. Um, now, I thought that's a brilliant plan for more people to move out of California, but uh, whatever the case may be with that, but um, we're, we're facing this more and more. You state certain things, and, and it's as if you, I mean, you will suddenly be told that you're phobic, you're hateful, you're you know, just despicable because you have committed the worst of crimes. I mean, if you went and killed somebody, okay, that's one thing. You, but you, you know, didn't go with this. And that's the culture we live in. Do you know that being a follower of Jesus Christ is eventually here in the next 15 to 20 years going to cost you? And I'm, you know, I feel sorry for people in their 20s that are in here and your teens in here because it's going to be bad for you unless there is a revival in the United States. It's going to cost you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So the Lord's trying to communicate to these individuals, realize this, I'm gone. I am going to come back and take you to the place that I prepared for you, but during this time while you're here, you're going to suffer at the hands of people who don't want what you have. They don't understand what you have is really the problem. And they are going to take it. So 
you know, you go through all of that now and, and you go, okay, you got to count the cost. There's a determination here. Yes, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Not only are you saved, you ought to you know, get to the point that I am going to be a follower of him. But the last two verses here, I, you know, at first I was like, there's not a connection here, but then I'm like, aha, I know what the connection is now. Because all of a sudden he starts talking about salt. You know, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, uh, as you think about salt, he says salt's good. And you go, well, what's it good for? You know, it makes my fries taste better, so I pour more on. Uh, that, that's not really what he's referring to. He's refer- referring to what salt is capable of doing. Uh, as you see in your notes there, the nature of salt is to preserve goodness, if I put it that way, and to prevent rottenness, okay, spoiling. I mean, these two things are very important, and that's what they use salt for, because they didn't have a lot of refrigeration back then. You had meats and things like this. You would rub them in salt to make sure that they were okay. Um, It would kill off germs. They would use this in wounds sometimes because it was in a very effective cleaner of wounds. Um, It was so valuable. It was a a rich commodity because because it was difficult to get. And you would sometimes, the Roman soldiers would be paid in salt. And you've heard the statement, they're not worth their salt. Well, that comes from the the statement that they used to pay people in salt because it was difficult to get. You had to go to salt flats and places like that, and and you'd have to have somebody get this and haul it long distances to get it to you. Now we've got all these chemical processes that make it, and it's not all that valuable. But the Lord says, listen, it's valuable for these things. It it takes care of, or it, it stays rottenness. It keeps it from getting worse. You know, spreading, uh, and it's good uh, for preserving things. And so what you have is this, a disciple of Jesus will have these activities as their mission in this world. To preserve what's good, morally right, follows in the character of who God is, and you say, this is what it's like. And you're also saying, this is wrong. We're not just going to go along with this. This isn't right. Uh, And so you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are going to be called salt. In other places, the Lord combines it with the idea of light. You're going to be those two things in a world that is in darkness. You're going to be these things to work in a world that is going to not initially like you doing this. No one likes a light suddenly beaming into their eyes when they're just waking up and they've been in darkness. No one likes salt being rubbed in their wounds. But as a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be called to this. You're going to be called to have these kind of activities as your mission in this world. And so Count the cost and make the commitment to be a follower of Jesus and a true, I mean, this is, this is Jesus' standard for a disciple. I mean, he's not, he's not giving them another option. He's going, if you really want to be a disciple, this is what you're going to do. Not, 
uh, you can still be my disciple and not do these things. You, you know, that's okay. No, he's, he's, he's putting down a, a very strong standard for these people to see if they want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So any questions on this or thoughts uh, on this passage? But uh, it is one for us to consider that you know, our discipleship here hasn't really cost us truly that much in the United States, but it is going to start costing us more and more if we're truly going to follow Christ. You know, this is a great passage for down south, everyone saved. And you're like, well, you know, what if it was to cost you your life to be a Christian? Well, I don't know if I'm that fanatical. Yes, space. You're looking for a space. A blank? Yes, I missed the turn from the second time I said. To display grace to certain individuals? Is that the. Basic sense means to love less. To love less, however, love had the idea of an intentional choice. So, yeah. Malachi 1, 2 through 3 is the one blank. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Yep. And then, uh, yeah, the relationship, or excuse me, the other blank is grace. That's there. Mary Jo, you had a question or you were... Yeah. Legislation, all these great things that go on. I just remember Jeff Musgrave saying, people want more than Like he said, people know something isn't quite right in the world. Mm-hmm. When these things go on, and it really isn't more of a hearing of the gospel or an interest on their part. Mm-hmm. What we might have to face. Yeah. Light shines brighter in darkness. Um, and it's more effective, salt's more effective when uh, there is things that are open and, and out in the open to be touched. So, 